and welcome to the Hack Your Mindset podcast with me, Jenny Winterleach, the Mindset Hacker. So wherever you are today and whatever it is you're doing while you're listening to this, settle in and enjoy the ride. Hi everyone and welcome, welcome to the Flying Changes Mindset and Performance Q&A and I'm delighted this morning to be joined by uh, Bert Sheffield. Hi Bert. Hiya. Um, now Bert, you are a Paralympian. Um, a World Equestrian Games individual, uh, you got fourth at the World Equestrian Games and things, so you've been individually up there in the rankings, and you've had quite a journey to be where you are. So just tell us a little bit about your yourself. Um, hi, I'm Bert Sheffield. I am a grade three para dressage rider. I compete for Canada, but I live in Lincolnshire in the UK. And... I have been on a huge journey with parasport and also running alongside that able-bodied dressage. Um, I have rheumatoid arthritis. I was diagnosed with rheumatoid when I was 20, although I started with the disease when I was about 15. So um, there's two sort of different types of para rider. There's those that are born with a disability and those that acquire it through disease or accident or, you know, happenings in their life. So I've had to deal with um, going from being a, a fully functioning um, human being to a less functioning human being and how that's affected my dreams and my aspirations and my um my image of myself um my understanding of who i am as a person and it has developed me in what i how i treat my life and how i how i view what is possible mm. so yeah Interesting. Okay. So, gosh. So something that's actually degenerative that's affected mm-hmm. you worse and worse over the years that, that slowly changes your, your perception of things. Very different to something where you're an amputee, maybe, where it's very, very traumatic and sudden. Yeah. Um, or perhaps, like you say, where, where you were born with that and actually you know no different. So mm. tell us then about kind of, so it is Mental Health Awareness Month. I'm not sure when the podcast comes out, if it still is, but it has been. And um, tell us a little bit about then the effect of something that like this, that's, you know, degenerative, that, that means that, um, you know, things are changing for you. Tell us the effect that that has on you as a rider and, and your, your mental health and your aspirations and those sort of things. Well, I started out riding, um, I was showing ponies and riding dressage as a younger rider and I was able-bodied and I was very bright at school. Sorry. I was very bright at school. Everything was, my life was relatively easy in that things kind of just plugged away and worked. And then I developed epilepsy. So my brain kind of let me down. The stuff inside my head stopped working. Um, And then from the epilepsy, I developed rheumatoid arthritis so my body stopped working so in fairly short succession all the things I took for granted in my sort of physical and mental life were breaking down around me I had to find a way through this 
and there was a huge sort of grieving process um, which took me many years to work through. The horses were instrumental in that and although I left the horse world for a few years I was able to come back to it with a sort of a feeling that this was actually what I needed in my life rather than um, it just being a continuum and horses just were always in my life. I, I made the conscious decision that I needed horses in my life. They were to do with my recovery, they were to do with my future, and they were to do with what I saw, my identity as myself. So I believe that horses were incredibly good for my mental health. I think sometimes elite sport is not always the healthiest thing for your mental health, but certainly horses help you deal with elite sport, they help you deal with illness, and they help you deal with the the struggles we all have in life. So when I was in my teenage years, I had this grieving process. And in that grieving process, I went into depression. Um, I developed eating disorders, quite damaging eating disorders, and then also self-harm. And I had to scrape myself back out of the bottom of the barrel. And it is it is a really tough journey. These things don't ever completely leave you. You have to find your way of crawling away from them. And to begin with, it is it is a crawl. It is a very, very tough crawl. And it feels very, very difficult. Having some light at the end of the tunnel to go towards is so important. And that's something that horses gave me. I didn't, when I came back to the horses, know much about parasport. So although I had actually been um, brought up around Stoke Mandeville Hospital, the home of the Paralympics, I didn't identify parasport and myself because like many people I saw parasport as being for paraplegics people in wheelchairs people with spinal injuries not the more general disabled population so I came back in to horses for the love of horses for the love of training dressage for the love of the horsey all the wonderful things that horses give me, not for a burning ambition to go to the Paralympics. That came later. So there is so much that horses give us that is um, different to the sport. Um, I mean, the companionship, the, the community around them. I know there's a lot that's said about you know, the bullying in the horse community, but to be fair, the bullying I've experienced in the horse community has been nothing compared to the bullying I've given myself over the years with a mental illness. So it really does just brush off like water off a duck's back. Mm. And I think that's such a key point that actually there can be it around us. Absolutely, there can. There's no doubt about that. And it's a passion of mine very much and something that I'm actually going to be doing something about in a project going forwards. But um 
the things that we say to ourselves can be far worse. I mean, I always say to people, like, if you actually said the stuff you say to yourself, to your friends, you'd have none, you know, because we can mm. be so horrible to ourselves. So when you were in that dark place and you had, you know, eating disorders and depression and self-harm and you were saying you just needed enough of a light at the end of the tunnel, what were the kind of things that you were doing or you were able to do or that you you had to change or maybe get help with, focus on, any of that? that slowly started to change it for you? Because like you say, it's not something that just happens overnight. It's not, you can't just turn it off. If it were that easy, people wouldn't have it in the first place because it mm. gradually comes in and it, it, it has to sort of gradually go away. It can go away fairly quickly with the right help though, can't it? Um, I didn't have particularly good mental health support, but I did, the year I went to university, I actually bought myself a bowl um i i don't know why i think it was one of those serendipitous moments i went to um i went to see a friend and one of the mares had um, given birth that morning and the three-hour-old foal was in the field i mean they were welsh cob foals so they were fold out you know they were in a herd and he came over to the foal uh, came over to the pickup truck and kind of said, get the hell out of my field. And I went, oh, he's wonderful. And I bought him. And I mean, bless him. I still have him. He is 21. And he's always been a little bit of a lame duck. Um, he is lovely, but he's not the most mentally stable or soundest or anything else he is he is just a lovely person but he has been my sort of problem child and he was a project that kept me going when I was at university sort of having to come home and do stuff with him and sort him out and sort out the the trials and tribulations that he brought with his um his behavior and so it was yeah, uh, he he was often my light at the end of the tunnel, and although he, I mean, he was okay. We trained him to a certain level in dressage. He was he was not the ideal starting material, but he was the ideal, um, or he is the ideal, very affectionate, very lovely little heart horse kind of creature that gave me a focus he's responsible for pulling me out of that mm. i'm quite sure so you know there's probably people out there with with mental health that isn't so good right now and things and they've got horses and they're thinking well i haven't got a horse like that like you know or or that's that's not why horses mm. for me um you say you need a focus. What was it about having that focus that, that made the difference for you? Because it may not always be a horse. It might be something else. Absolutely. It could be anything. And I don't suggest that you go out and buy yourself a foal. Sort of like I have a, a depression diagnosis. I need to go and buy myself a foal. Um, I don't think that's a responsible thing to do. And I had the right support around me to make that a realistic thing to do at the time. It's the focus, something that is bigger than yourself, something that pulls you 
out of bed that you have to do whether you feel like it or not, whether your brain chemistry says this is a good idea or not. Um, for me with the rheumatoid arthritis, it's the a focus of something that I have to do whether or not my body would like to play ball. It's so much easier to not do anything and to sit in the hole than it is to climb out of the hole. Um, and I don't believe you can sit in the hole and wait for someone else to rescue you. I think you have to keep trying to climb out of it, even even though it feels very difficult and some days climbing out of that hole feels more impossible than others. You have to keep trying. And it's that the thing that motivates you, the thing that is big enough in your head to keep pulling you up. It, it's that thing almost of you know, if your dream's big enough, it scares you. It's it's finding something that clicks in your head that pulls you out of yourself. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, one of the phrases, I love the one that you use there, which is, you know, your dreams need to scare you. But uh, I also say that, you know, your why, your reason why, whatever it is, has to be so mm -hmm. big that the challenges to get there seem insignificant. Like they're still gonna be there, the challenges are still there, but you kind of, you you just have to get over them. They're non-negotiable because yeah. the, the thing you're aiming for is so huge that you just, you're just so determined to get there that, that nothing's gonna get in your way and you'll find your way around it. And do you know what's really interesting is that although you are a Paralympian and you do ride for Canada on, on teams and things like that, that wasn't your why that clearly wasn't your why because that came later on, didn't it? Mm, so, yeah, it so totally came later. Most, was, and most people would think that for a Paralympian, that would be their why. So this is really interesting because for you, that came that came later on rather than being the thing at the beginning. So what was, what was the thing at the beginning? Um, I have always loved the, the training and the art of dressage. When I was five years old, the World Dressage Championships was at Cedar Valley, just outside Toronto, which is next door to the farm that our friends in Canada have. So my mother took me, because she's horsey, she took me um, to Cedar Valley and we spent however many days the World Championships was up in the stands watching it. Now, at five years old, that is pretty intense and probably not recommended for most kids for um, instilling a love of something. I was bribed with a lot of ice cream and a lot of sweets and a lot of you can have stickers and sort of sit still, shut up and let the adults do their thing. You know, we're trying to watch dressage, you're not bouncing up and down. Um, but there was something about the experience that caught my imagination. I don't actually remember much of the experience other than I remember sitting on the in the stands um, staring at the wooden seat and I remember being in a tent and being given a whole load of procure stickers but I don't really remember what much of watching the dressage 
I think it was sort of instilled into my subconscious rather than into my conscious brain. But I came away from it loving it and having some sort of overall impression, some emotional connection to the the glamour, the beauty of dressage. And I had no idea about what went into that, what created that. I just had this idea of this beautiful art form. I, I wasn't really even aware of it, particularly as a competitive thing. Um, I couldn't have told you at the time, I and mean, I could now because I've obviously you know, read around my sport and I, I know my sport quite well, but I didn't know like who had won. I didn't, I didn't come away saying, you know, oh, you know, I watched the gold medal performance and it inspired me. Um, but somehow it had gone, it sort of bypassed the conscious kid brain that had sort of been worrying about stickers and wooden benches and gone into the subconscious part of my brain that wanted to replicate it and found the beauty and the, yeah, that that just, that glamour. And, and I had no idea. I had no idea what went into those performances. So that was the dream that somehow, like you say, got instilled into you as a child somehow. Mm. <laughs> And then you you wanted to be a part of that. Now, when reality starts to come in, as often is the case with the goal, the goal is very glamorous. The goal is obviously something we want. But I always talk about you need to know the disadvantages of goal, not just the disadvantages of reaching the goal, because there are those which people never think about, but also the disadvantages of the journey to get there. You know, what mm. are the things you've got to do differently? Give up. What's the unglamorous stuff? What's the difficult parts? What's the challenges? What happened when you started to then head into that realm? And although your why was still there, you wanted to be a part of that, you found it enchanting, mesmerizing as a child. What was it that kept you going towards that, even when things got hard? And I mean, even that pulled you through eating disorder, depression, you know, mental health that wasn't great at that point. What kept you going? I, this probably surprised people that know me a little bit because I'm, on the outside, I'm probably not someone who looks like the most disciplined person. Um, I have a very untidy car. Um, I don't particularly like being tidy and neat. And I'm quite organized, but I'm organized inside my head. I don't organize by writing lists and giving a sort of a particularly outward um, impression of organization. But I like discipline. Um, I, I went to a convent school when I was very young and there was always part of me that was said, you know, people said, you know, if you don't work hard at school, you'll end up having to be a nun. Ha ha, isn't that awful? Can't imagine anything worse. And there was always part of me that went, actually, I love the idea of, I'm, I'm not religious in that way. Um, I love the idea of that fixed routine, that discipline, that knowing almost that boredom, that sort of ennui effect. Um, I love mucking out. I love the daily grind of doing horses. So 
the sacrifice to me is almost going to the big shows um, and breaking my my daily routine of the stuff that I really enjoy, which is I love the mucking out. I love the minute detail. I love I love the organisation. I love that boredom that allows my brain freedom. And people find that really hard to understand. So, yeah, I love training. Competition kind of justifies the training. Um, and sacrifice, yeah, there's, we all sacrifice different things. Everybody's life involves, you know, sort of like pros and cons. So I don't see the sacrifice I require for high-level sport as being anything anything more sacrificial than what someone else would do, the sacrifices they make to have a high-level job or the sacrifices they make to have a smart car. It's everybody makes different choices. Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? And, that's, and I talk about that a lot. It's all about choice. And, okay, some of them might seem harder than others, but You've got to be you've got to know what the big picture is and the end goal is. And then that makes the, the choices a little easier, at least to make, because, you know, if they're heading you towards it or away from it or maybe sideways for a while. So at what point then you, you kind of you love the discipline, you love the um, the monotony or, you know, the daily routine, the discipline. That's all. Oh, yeah. That's give, me, give me monotony great. any day. I love it. Yeah. And you say that frees up your brain then. Does that mean that then that frees up the area of creativity that you love? to have or what is it that it frees up your brain to do it allows my brain to relax um i don't i quite like that sort of meditative state that comes from doing repetitive um very oh what's the word when you like you know you're going to do it, inevitable, repetitive. I, I think if I was a horse, I'd be a cribber. You know, I, I, I would be full of stereotypical behaviours because I love almost that mindless, quiet repetitiveness. It, it gives me a peace and it allows all the stuff in my brain to quieten down in a way that doing yoga or... Um, sort of a, a normal med meditation session doesn't do. So it actually kind of helps in my recovery to have that quiet space in my head without, um, it, it's still, there's still motion. There's still things happening to stop it from turning into a, a black hole of anxiety kind of empty space. Wow, that's really powerful. And that that certainly, I mean, you know, we all know the benefits of mindfulness. We know the benefits of just allowing the, the thoughts to be quiet and doing something that you don't need to be thinking about too much. And, and the effect that that has on the body, on lowering adrenaline, on lowering cortisol, doing that is incredibly good for us. Um, to hear it from you, because because there's not one way to, you know, to bake a cake is there if if for you that mucking out or poo picking or whatever it is that's your way of getting into that state like you say it's very good for your body it allows everything to just relax rest and 
and relax. And I think a lot of people think the only way to get it is through yoga or through meditation or, you know, through trying to sit still in the woods. But actually, I do, you know, I say to a lot of people, some of my best thinking was done when I was poo picking or, you know, doing something mm. that requires or when I'm driving or when you're in the shower, you know, when you can't do anything else in that moment, apart from what you're yeah. doing, your brain is then given the freedom to relax and to 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 let the body to settle. So I think it's mm. great to hear from you that you get that from the sort of the everyday side of things. Oh, well, I mean, the team have stopped trying to get me to do the yoga sessions in the morning because <laughs> yoga gives me panic attacks. Um, I, I'm sure if I really, really worked on it and it was really important to my life, I'm sure I could get over it. But anything where I have to do a breathing exercise, stationary, I start to not be able to breathe and get very, very anxious. Um, and it's the most horrible feeling. And I feel not just like I'm going to die, but I feel like I want to die. Um, and they're all going, this is a nice relaxation exercise. Um, you know, just lie on the floor and relax and think about your breathing. And I'm immediately in a state of um, I want to die and I can't breathe. And so even just thinking about it, I can feel the anxiousness coming up. Whereas give me a stable to poo pick and I'm, I'm happy. I can like drop, drop that um, sort of adrenaline and just go into this quiet, easy zone. I mean, some people have said that I might really suit the sort of Taoist um, walking meditation and yeah, I, I've looked at it and I can see how a walking meditation or um, that kind of quiet, almost like a, a chanting meditation, something like that would suit me much better than trying to sit under a tree and think about life. Yeah. And I think this is the thing that, you know, people need to realize is that there isn't one way of doing something because it works for the majority doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone. But if you can find your way of doing what is really good for us, then that's mm. great, you know, because it is a great thing to do. It's just not, there's not only one way of doing it. It's a bit like riding, isn't it? You know, there are many ways to get the result. There are some ways which are longer term better. There are some ways which are shorter term better. There are some ways that suit certain types of bodies and some ways that suit others. And certainly, particularly within para, there is certainly not one way to ride a horse because, how can you say that? And I know Clive, your trainer, who's also, he trains me as well, mm -hmm. says you actually only need certain things to ride a horse and that's a, a, a head, a torso and something to sit on. And even that is, yeah. you know, in some yeah, areas, the case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so um, it's just perfect example, this, isn't it? Yeah. And I find riding a horse and the sort of artistic expression of riding and training a horse is quite a meditative exercise anyway and um, anytime you're around a horse you are around such a a large powerful or inspiring being you have to be mindful you have to put yourself aside put all the other stuff that's going on in your head in your life whatever aside and concentrate on what you're doing you have to find a level of mindfulness if you're dealing with horses and whether you like it or not, you know, if, if you want to stay safe handling a 650 kilo 
um, big strong dressage horse that's full of vim and vinegar. You you need to be in the moment. You can't be somewhere else in your head. And I've I've sort of developed what I call like a ridden yoga routine on the horses to enhance that. I know I can put both myself and my horse in a sort of mindful state where we're both feeling for each other's bodies and quiet in the arena. It makes a huge difference if you can you know, get that sort of in touch with yourself, in touch with your horse and your horse to be in touch in the same way. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's why so many people are drawn to riding, whether they realise it or not, is that because when you are riding and you're and you're riding well, not just out having a hat, having a chat with your friend, you know, when you are in flow with your horse, whether that be in dressage, cross country, show jumping, any other sport that, you know, I do working equitation and I love it because you have to think your way around it. If any other thoughts come in when you're trying to do one of those obstacles, you're going to stuff it up, you know, and I, I think a lot of people don't realize that that is why they enjoy it so much so people with you know high powered jobs or stressful lives in other ways love riding exactly like you said because it's your place to go and be and you don't have to pretend to be anything you know the horses don't care who you are they just see you as a being they've got that that they don't know what you earn they don't know what your stresses are they don't know any of that they just see you as a being um and if they want you to work with them then that's just incredible isn't it Oh, I didn't know you did working equitation. It's I something do. I really, really want to have a go at later in the year. Yes, I've awesome. I'm on the squads. Oh, excellent. Yeah, yeah. So oh. it's great. Yeah, I think everyone should have a go at it. I think it's great. Absolutely brilliant. But um, yeah, playing, but it. But... <laughs> yeah, you've been playing. Awesome. Awesome. What have you been doing? Just. I think you've got um, the dressage phase down already. That's good. <laughs> I've been doing the gates and the backing up over obstacles, along things, through yeah. things, through yeah. turns and going over bridges and through stuff. And, yeah. and how have you found that's helped in your dressage and in your training and things? Because a lot of people don't realise that the the obstacles and the ease of handling, as we call it, and then there's another phase called mm -hmm. the speed where you do it all as fast as you can. But the ease of handling phase massively helps with your your flat your dressage because of the mm. things that you're asking the horse to do how, how have you found that um i did i did put together a little clinic for some of my riders of i called it purposeful dressage and we did some of the sort of working equitation style obstacles we sort of set them up in the school and i found it was it was really interesting how you have to if you can sort of compartmentalize the obstacles and see that they are sort of a composite of different dressage movements and you ride them in a quiet, logical, progressive fashion, then you can do the obstacles pretty much straight away um, without too much of a problem and you can stay, they help to focus you Whereas if you just kind of go a bit Gymkhana kid and go, oh, my God, I've got to do this, and they throw themselves at the gate, a rider that's perfectly capable of rein back, turn on the forehand, turn on the haunches, suddenly finds they can't do the gate at all. So it was, 
I found it very interesting how different riders with different mentalities tackled the obstacles. And some that I thought would be able to do them standing on their heads suddenly went, ah, it's a challenge and I can't do it because I've never done it before and became sort of frantic. So it gave me a hugely interesting window into people's psyches and learning styles and yeah, I, I found it really interesting. Um, I think the horses quite enjoyed it because it was less pressure on them. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, it, it is absolutely brilliant for the horses because, like you said, they are learning. Turn on the haunches, turn on the forehand, turn on, um, you know, lateral work, rein back. Um, mm. You know, going sideways over a pole looks really simple. It's really very hard to do and your horse has to be straight and it has to be off the leg. And things. But they're learning all of that without going round and round in circles in a plain arena and it engages their brain mm. as well. And I think it's it's great. But you're entirely right. It definitely does show you people's psyches. Um, you watch it at a competition. I've got one coming up this weekend and you watch the different levels of competition and you see the way different people approach it. It's the ones that are quietly methodical and work it through that do much better than the ones that go at it like, you know, pony club games, because that's not what it is. But that's the perception, I think, sometimes is that that's what yeah. it is. It's, a, it's like handy pony and it's not. OK, well, as much as I would happily talk about working expectation for the next half an hour, <laughs> I we haven't really got to the part of your story that, uh, well, it's all very interesting, but the part of your story that I think a lot of people do find interesting, which is how on earth then did you get from you know, doing your dressage and riding and, and having the condition that you've got into para, into, you know, that side of the sport. What was it that changed? How did you get into it? What what was that beginning of that journey all about? Well, after university, I decided I really wanted to go and be a working pupil and learn more about um, dressage and be more immersive in it than I had previously been I'm quite an all or nothing person and I have to fight that because not everything is black and white and you have to yeah, shades of grey have to come into life but anyway I I found myself a position working as a, a working pupil apprentice it wasn't really apprentice at the time um, with Gareth Hughes and I was working for him and it was quite obvious that I had a bit of a disability and he said to me, why don't you go and do para? And it never actually occurred to me that I could do para. I didn't see myself as that disabled, you know, that very much in inverted commas because having grown up around Stoke Mandeville Hospital, I really did see para sport as being something you did if you had, if you were paraplegic, if you're in a wheelchair, it was for sort of extreme levels of disability not for a bit lame and a bit sore and yeah that stuff and anyway so I went and found out a bit more I ended up getting classified as classified into what would now be grade five at the time it was grade four because the grading system was organized slightly differently and I did that grade for a while um uh won a national title in that grade and then i went down to i was reclassified because i'm a review athlete because my condition is unstable and mainly degenerative they then made me a grade four which at the time was a grade three but it's now a grade four um and i competed 
as a grade four at the World Equestrian Games in Normandy in 2014 for the Canadian team. And then they made me in, I think it was, it was either 2017 or 2018, I can't remember. They made me grade three, um, which is now is a walk trot grade. We are allowed to counter in our freestyle, but we do walk trot in our technical tests. Um, and I've done uh, one major games as a grade three. And that's currently what I am. And it's, I, I kind of, when, when I sort of started para, I, I went into it and went, well, I have good support. I'm working for Gareth. Um, I have a lovely little Welsh cop that I adore. Um, it became blatantly obvious that he was not the ticket for para sport at international level. Um, not from a soundness point of view, not from a mental point of view. He was as hot as hell and like some Welsh cops, really buzzy and difficult to have that lovely, relaxed harmony that we look for in Paris, para dressage. It, beyond what a normal able-bodied dressage rider is looking for, para has to have a softness and a relaxed, harmonious, um, real partnership base. You know, we we're allowed some positive tension, but when but the judges aren't looking for the same level of positive tension as they do for say a Grand Prix horse. So it was a different a different thing. And I found myself another horse. He is wonderful. He's still here. Um, he's actually on loan to a friend of mine. I trained him. He competed. Um, advanced medium with me. He competed internationally at grade four with me. He won some. Well, he won at grade five. He won the national championship many years ago. Um, and he, I trained him through to all the Grand Prix work. He's a, he's a fantastic horse. He's just not particularly sound. So I then moved on and found another horse. Um, as a two-year-old, she was in a field of a friend bred her and she was the horse that took me to Rio and she's now with a British young rider on the, has been doing British sort of international young rider able-bodied stuff and she was she was fantastic um, and now I have Wonky whose proper name is Farusa and I found her in a field and she is my horse I'm working with towards Tokyo Amazing. And I think sometimes people, well, I don't think they do actually say to me sometimes, oh, well, you know, it's all about the horse that you've got and you're not going to get anywhere unless you've got the right horse. And of course, that is 50 percent of the partnership, isn't it? But I think you've just proven there that actually sometimes you have to make the really hard decisions and the really tough stuff. And your little Welsh cob, knowing what he got you through, oh, you know, how he's, how, yeah. his, his job was not power. His yeah. job was keeping me alive. Mm. And and um, how did you deal with that though? When when actually it gets to the realization that you know this horse that you adore and you love and he's meant so much and he's got you through things and his jobs to keep you alive, you know that he's that kind of horse. How how did you manage from a mental perspective with 
saying, okay, he's not the one that's going to get me towards my goal. Because one of the things I talk about all the time is that you've got your goal and you've got your horse. And if they're both able to match up, then great. But more often than not, you've got your goal and the horse can't necessarily do it. And you have to make that really hard decision. Is the goal more important than the horse? And if the horse is more important than the goal, you've got to lower your goal. But if your goal is more important than the horse, then then that this is the hard, this is such a hard decision, hasn't it? How did you mentally do that? It is very hard. That is a really difficult one. I find it is probably the biggest challenge I find for me because I'm very emotionally invested in my horses. Um, I try not to work with horses that I don't believe in. Um, so for me, if a horse isn't going to make it, I want to find that horse a new situation as soon as possible because I, I invest myself in them. I always have done. I am still that little girl with their first pony. Um, and that's, that's why I set up my heart horse coaching business was I bought Farusa and it became very obvious very early on that this was a horse I really connected with. And it reminded me that I, I needed in my life that, um, that heart horse, that connection I needed the horse to be part of the magic of the journey, not the horse being the vehicle of the journey. And so I, I've always struggled with, you know, um, in a way, because I don't have a lot of finance behind me, I'm not able to go and buy myself, you know, the next totalus, the horse that is guaranteed as much as any horse is guaranteed, but, you know, a horse that's guaranteed you know, purpose-built to do the job, has got a track record to take it to do the job. I I don't have that. I have to, by hook or by crook, find horses from behind hedges and down ditches and beg and borrow and steal off friends. So it's always been a challenge. And I've, I have um, loaned some amazing horses. I borrowed Eve Little's Bindro T for the World Equestrian Games in 2014 and Dino and I we had a really nice partnership it was a fantastic experience the horse did an amazing amount for me even her family did an amazing amount for me um, it was a really fantastic experience um, but it wasn't fulfilling in the same way as taking a heart horse to a games would be. It doesn't have the same fairy tale dream element. Um, I mean, everybody wants to have that. You know, it's whether it's sort of you read the books like Lucinda Green's when she was Lucinda Pryor Palmer's book Up, Up and Away, where she took her first horse to the Olympics and won badminton on it. You know, everyone wants that dream. But life isn't always like that. And um, when you look on social media, in, and we now have social media, obviously we didn't have it at those times, but you, it's easy to believe that people pop out of nowhere as a success and they just spring into your consciousness through the algorithm 
and they're successful. But what you don't realize is how long they've been peddling away like mad to make that success. And what might feel like it's their dream horse, their first horse, is probably not their dream horse, their first horse. It's probably several horses down the road. Um, I, a lot of, you know, I've had people, clients and things say to me, isn't it wonderful that Charlotte Jardin's first Grand Prix horse was Allegro? And you have to go, well, actually, no, it wasn't. You know, he might be her, he might have been her fairy tale horse, but her first Grand Prix horse was Fernandez. Um, but there is this, I'm not saying that Charlotte made the myth, but there, there is a sort of myth in the culture that because she first came to their notice with that horse, with Allegro, that they feel she is, that he was her first horse and that there's that fairy tale element. Um, it, it's, it's a real challenge, isn't it? it it's... It's interesting it is yeah and you know they are very special to us and and you know when people people find it very hard and i totally understand it i'm literally at this point with with mine not quite yet but we'll see where he's not probably going to be advanced gb level my horse we'll see how far we can get him you know but my yeah. my trainer and the and the and the squad trainer has said see how far we can get in, but you might find you want to be Team GB, you're going to have to have another horse. And that's that's nothing I've ever had to deal with before because I've never been working with potential to do something like that, you know. And it's just, it, I was talking to Clive about it the other day and I said, gosh, this is strange. This is the first time that my goal hasn't been based on the horse that I've got because actually there's potential for more. And, and you know, it's, it's difficult. And I think even if people haven't got that going on, often they, they've got a goal they want to achieve and, for some reason that it just may not be that horse that does it and, and it's saying to people like it's okay you know it's all right we do adore them we do love them it doesn't mean you're going to dump them on the side of a road and go and get your next one like you wouldn't do that like you say you find them what's right for them and 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 mm. find a, a great place for that horse to move on to or loan out or be for someone else do you find though that there's a almost an un underdog grit that you dig in with that horse mm. because you know, when people say, oh, you know, that horse isn't good enough, um, you kind of jump to their defense. And oh, of course. Can, but I can make him good enough. Well, it's, um, it's very interesting because it's only recent that it's been said. And we've only recently been put on squads. And obviously they picked me and the horse as the combination. But he's a 17 hand Irish sports horse, which isn't an Iberian horse that's sort of 15, 1, 15, 2. So he's not the stamp. But that's part of the reason we're on the squads is because he is not the stamp. So they're saying to people, look, you don't have to be. That doesn't mean we won't go up through the levels, but whether or not we will get to the point where his body is able and capable when he's a big honking horse to do the things we need him to do, who knows? But it's only like saying Cobbs can't do Grand Prix, isn't it? And if you put your determination in and you put the work in, they can. So it's certainly not written off yet, but it's the first time that that hint has been put in there that mm. for the first time, your goal with your horse may be different well uh the horse farusa i i found her i mean she was a real underdog horse um i got her for pretty much meat money um and i brought her home unvetted and i got my vet to come and have a quick check of her and my my vet at the time unfortunately he's not my vet at the moment because he's had to change the area that his practice covers he walked in the yard and he looked at her and he went, but that is an effing 
not effing. Um, ugly whores, what the F do you think you're going to do with that? And she's my special horse. She's the horse I'm preparing for Tokyo. And I had the, at the time, Canadian team coach took one look at her, not Clive, different, different coaches, and wrote a report back to Equine Canada saying that Bert's new horse was basically disgusting and um, had no walk, had no trot, had no canter, was foul, and Bert was wasting her time and living a pipe dream and... Yeah, that it was some kind of weird ego trip that I was on and I was completely unrealistic. So I do think that you can, yeah, sometimes you just have to believe and shut your ears to the rest of the world. Yes. But yes. you also have to keep in mind being fair to the horse. You can't make them something yes, they're yes. not. No. And I think that's the thing, though, isn't it? Physically, you're not trying to get your horse to do something it's not capable of. It's just someone's judgment has said it might not be you know, it's not the one that you want, but you, you know, and yeah, you're right. You dig deeper, don't you? Cause you, cause there is that bit of you that goes, well, I think I'll, I'll prove you wrong on this. And it, it is that fine line though, isn't it? As long as you're not doing anything that harms the horse, mm -hmm. then why not? Why not dig deep and say, oh, I'll show you we can, you know, I think all these, these um, gorgeous big cobs and, and people that are doing Grand Prix on them and, you know, the mules, that was the other one that lady said, well, I think you'll find we can do it with a mule and, you know, well, um, Jane Turney, she's one of my team. She was the first one to ever win the PSG National Championships um, on a 14-2 pony, you know, mm. and she's heading it for Grand Prix. So why not? Why well, not? I mean, I know I I have a, a, a slight guilt trip in the my little Welsh cob. I was being asked by the trainers and by the judges to try to create an elasticity in him that he wasn't physically capable of making. And it was, I feel very guilty that I was asking him to do something his body couldn't do. But there are Welsh cobs that are more elastic than him, um, that have better confirmation for dressage than him. And his generosity was incredible in that he tried and he tried and he tried um but he just couldn't do it so i think that brought home to me very early on in my journey how mindful you have to be of what you're actually asking of the horses um i'm very careful with Verusa because she's gelderlander she's driving bread for her, the grade three suits her really well because her walk and her trot are her very comfortable paces and her canter, she has a canter, she has a really nice canter, but she finds canter much more stressful than she does walk and trot um, because she's not naturally a cantering animal. She's a she's basically a trotting driving horse. Um, so it's... You, you have to be mindful of what you're asking the horse and the demands you're putting on them. And sometimes trainers will, they're trying to help you live your dream and maybe not quite as aware as you are when you're sat on the horse of how much stress you're putting that horse under, especially when it's not the ideal candidate for the job 
but it's the one you've got at the time. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. And, and you know, the, like you say, you the world is not black and white. There are many shades of grey and, and working that out can be difficult when we like a bit of black and white makes things a lot easier, doesn't it? But we have to deal with many shades of grey. <laughs> so thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating hearing all about your journey and your thoughts on things. If people want to get in touch with you or they want to follow you, see what you're up to or find out more about heart horse training. Is that what it is? Heart horse coaching? Heart horse dressage. Dressage. Yep. How can they do that? Um, there's the Heart Horse Dressage website and Facebook page, and I'm on Instagram as Heart Horse Dressage. And then for my more sort of athlete-focused stuff is Bert Sheffield Paraquestrian Rider on Facebook. Super. Lovely. So um, they can get hold of you through that if they want to. Yeah, there's lots Lovely. of different ways of getting hold of me. I, I hope I'm quite approachable. Uh, certainly, I, I try to... I try to help people when I can. Super. Thank you so much. Well, it's been absolutely lovely chatting to you. Uh, really interesting. Could have talked for hours, no doubt, but mm -hmm. I'm, I can't, sadly. <laughs> so um, we wish you the best of luck with your campaign you. towards Tokyo. And let's see what happens with Tokyo generally, let alone with uh, <laughs> Paralympic riding. Yeah. Um, I think Tokyo generally is the, is the challenge. I think, the yes. The dress test is the easy bit. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, I, the challenge is definitely going to be getting there and all of the fun of quarantine and training and all of those things. But let's let's see what happens. And we wish you the very best of luck with it, however it pans out. And uh, we look forward much, to following Jenny. you. Take Thank care, you. Beth. Bye. Thank you. Bye. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. If you want to listen to more of them, then please do follow us in Apple, in Google and on Podbean. Hack Your Mindset with Jenny is the name of this podcast. So please do subscribe, follow us, and we look forward to you listening into our next one. Bye, everyone. Who got this? Who got this?